Thanks to Grammarly for supporting this episode of Industry Focus. Grammarly is a communication tool that helps people improve their writing to be mistake-free, clear, and effective. Start writing confidently by going to Grammarly.com fool to get 20% off a Grammarly premium account today. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Monday, April 1st, and we're talking financials. I'm your host, Jason Moser, and on today's show, we'll talk about the latest news from the executive suite at Wells Fargo. We'll, of course, have one to watch for everyone out there, but we begin today with a new installment of Between Two Fools. Keith Mestrich is president and CEO of Amalgamated Bank, with over three decades of experience in the finance industry. In 2017, Keith guided Amalgamated's acquisition of San Francisco-based New Resource Bank, creating the nation's largest socially responsible bank. Last year, he helped Amalgamated take the next step by bringing the company to the public markets. I recently spoke with Keith about everything from how Amalgamated is setting the standard as a socially responsible bank to lessons he learned during the financial crisis and a whole lot more. Keith, first question here, and we've gotten this question from a few people here on the analyst team. Your message in building America's socially responsible bank. We we love the message. We love what you're trying to do there. And I wanted to get a little bit from your perspective. What goes into actually building America's socially responsible bank? What do you want our listeners to know about why that matters? Yeah, I that's a that's a that's a great question. Um, I think there's really two very important things that go into it. Our, our mission is really about helping a lot of other organizations that do good be more successful in their mission because we take some of the friction out from their financial transactions and help them execute better on those financial transactions. So if it's a, uh, if it's a human needs delivery nonprofit that's providing care to elderly senior citizens in their community, we help make their financial transactions go a little bit smoother. If it's a union representing workers, uh, we help them think through how to t- get the most advantage out of their banking relationship. That's a really important role that we pay, play. And it's really about advancing the socially responsible agendas of so many of our good clients. Um, that is a really important piece of it. Uh, we do it because we have just enough bespoke products and services that meet the needs of our nonprofit clients. We do it because we have bankers who really understand um, our our clients because they come out of their businesses, not out of the banking business in particular. And the other piece that's really important about it is that we have to have a very genuine brand. Um, If we are not adhering to all the socially responsible kind of things that our clients care about, um, they will sniff that out and we will not have a genuine uh, um, brand and people will not want to do business with us. So that means we have to treat our employees really, really well. We can't, you know, continue to foster income inequality. We were really proud to be the first bank to raise its minimum wage to $15 an hour and have continued to grow our wages um, since then. Um, we have to be good environmental stewards, and we're very proud to be the bank that's leading an effort of other American banks to think about how you account for the impact of climate on our on our own balance sheets and the loans that we make. We have to adhere adhere to the principles of diversity. And, and, you know, I'm really proud that we've built a senior executive team here where seven of the 16 people uh, in our senior executive ranks are women or people of color. Five people of the 12 people on our board are women or people of color. And, and, and adhering to those kinds of principles across the board um, is really how you create a genuine brand that people want to bank with and create a brand that helps them achieve their own missions. 
Yeah, I mean, that really that seems like it could lead me into my next question. Really, I wanted to speak a little bit about culture because culture is something that we here at The Motley Fool care greatly about. Uh, we're constantly working to try to shape our culture um, and make it something that everybody enjoys and is proud of. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what makes Amalgamated Bank so unique. Why is your culture there special? Well, I think one of the things that we're doing is we're really trying to explore how we deepen the cultural impact of the mission that we have. I I, I don't actually go out shopping all that often, um, but I did last year at the holidays venture out and spend a lot of time with my wife and family at the mall and, and, and other things. And I was struck by how many companies tried to put some socially responsible orientation into the marketing that they were doing. And a lot of it was, you know, people were talking about if we are a, if we're a retailer of women's clothing, we're going to give a portion of all of our sales to a women's organization or people doing something to protect uh, the national parks or something like that. And a lot of it was a, a give back thing. But I was struck I was struck by how universal it seemed to be um, in the in the marketing. But I was also struck by how much of the veneer of it felt to be pretty thin. Um, and I came back and we really began talking here about about how do we differentiate ourselves in an increasingly growing pool of companies that are trying to have um, a, a, a moniker of social responsibility associated with it because we need to have that genuine brand. And it's caused us to do you know, some real soul searching of how do we make sure that everything that we do, whether it's in the transaction activities that we do on behalf of our customers and how we do that, if it's around our employment policies, if it's around just the transparency that the C-suite has into the business plans of the um, operation with our with our other employees, how do we really create a culture that uh, it takes the principles of corporate social responsibility? It doesn't make it just a marketing you know gimmick, but really makes it something that we think about in in all of the work that we do um, every day. And I think we push that culture because we're open to talking about it and exploring it. And I, I don't purport that we do everything right at, at all. And I think uh, an important thing is how do we get the people who work here, you know, engaged in trying to make us better all the time? Yeah, it does feel like everywhere you go now, everybody's saying how socially responsible they are and, and how important that that is. But it does it feels like lip service in a lot of cases. And, and so uh, I, I think it, uh, it behooves us all to, to dig a little bit deeper and understand exactly why that means. Uh, you know why? Why what they're saying uh, actually jives with what they're doing. Um, now, you, you Amalgamated Bank is a recent IPO, still relatively new to the public markets. Uh, what were some of the biggest challenges you faced in taking the bank public last year? So we went public in in, in August. Um, it's a it's a it's a lot of work to do there. I think there were really uh, three big challenges that we had to face. Um, one was. It really required us to get incredibly sharp on what the strategy of the of the business was, and to be able to articulate that for potential investors in the company. That was that was a lot of work to really put a fine point on that. Uh, you know, our investment bankers helped us a, a, a lot through that process. It really got our management team working uh, much more closely uh, with each other to really be able to articulate that. But that work of really refining. Uh, that business strategy was a was a was a key piece of 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 work that we had to do. Second, big challenge um, was we're a company that had been owned by a union for ninety five years. Oh wow! And um, and privately held and 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 done it. And being able to you know really work with our 
private ownership to think about what it meant to be a public company. And that was a lot of soul searching with board members and, 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 and shareholders um, and really getting um, a collective understanding on why access to the capital markets so that we could really um, begin the process of growing this company again um, was an important component. And that, that was just a lot of you know, important work that we had to do. And then finally, as a company with a mission, um, we had to spend a lot of time with the investment community, um, really convincing them and explaining to them something that I very deeply believe, which is there is no trade-off between achieving our mission and achieving you know, profitability. Uh, I, I, in fact, think the, the only way we can achieve our mission of being a socially responsible organization is to be vibrantly profitable. And we had to start off every one of our meetings with investors really putting you know, to bed the notion that we must be sacrificing some level of profit if we're going to achieve our mission. And I really just believe it's just the opposite. I think vibrant profitability allows us to you know, plow resources back into the organization and build the kind of organization that allows us to meet our clients' needs. And, and, but that was a lot of work to convince people that that was, in fact, the case. And it's still work. I mean, I think we, still, we are going to have to fight that fight um, every day to convince people that we're not leaving something on the table. Yeah, I can imagine that is a real challenge, especially in your position. You're a smaller bank in a in a very tough and competitive market with some very big and well-endowed competitors. So, in, in that line, what do you view as not only some of the opportunities, but some of the challenges that uh, are, are there for you uh, as, as a smaller but clearly growing bank in today's uh, environment? Yeah, so let's talk about the opportunities first, right? We, I say this all the time, and I really mean it. There's 5,000 community banks in the United States. Um, we're different because we have a really defensible niche. Um, we know our customer base uh, incredibly well. It is a base of corporate customers that are between our traditional base and unions, nonprofits, political organizations, um, that is really underserved by today's financial system. Um, lots of banks will bank those kinds of organizations. We're the only one I know of that really specializes on it. And that, that defensible niche um, is really a great opportunity for us. Um, I, I think in today's banking market, you either got to be big so that you can um, you, you know, uh, take on the technological changes of gathering consumer deposits and putting all the kinds of cybersecurity protections in place that a, that a bank needs today, and figuring out how to have the you know marketing heft and the branch network support to be able to build a, a national consumer business largely, um, or you have to be able to do what Warren Buffett says: build a moat around your company. And I think we have a good moat because I don't think we're I don't think we have a lot of competitors who are competing for the same um, um, market that we are, and, and that's a, that's a great opportunity for us. Uh, the challenges, uh, like every other industry in the country right now, banking is being disrupted um, and being disrupted a lot by technology, artificial intelligence, and, and, and other things. And, you know, as a small bank in that space, we don't really have the, you know, the prowess of the dollars to be able to make huge investments in technology that may or may not work. Um, and we've got to be very attuned to watching what happens um, in the fintech space and in the in the big bank space, so that we are aligning ourselves to be fast followers, so that we can adopt the technologies and the and the services that uh, consumers want, and seem to ha- you know be something that uh, has become universally accepted in the banking industry. 
Yeah, you mentioned uh, earlier there. You know, in this business, one of the one of the traits you have to possess. You, you know, you have to be big um, if if you want to do X. And you know, I want to shift the conversation a little bit over towards uh, a recent headline here. We saw where. Uh, Tim Sloan, Wells Fargo's CEO, will be stepping down, and they're going to be looking to replace him with a a permanent uh, CEO here in the coming weeks or months. And you know, one of the things we uh, we've been kicking around here on, on the investing team for a while now, when when Tim first assumed that position, based on all of the the headlines, it seemed a bit of an odd choice at the time, primarily because you're bringing in someone internally who arguably was very much a part of all of the problems that ultimately came to light. I mean, it's hard to imagine he didn't know or understand what was going on. So, it always struck us as a little bit of an odd choice. Uh, fast forward to today, and, and you know, maybe they're looking at, hey, let's try to take control of the narrative here and bring in someone from the outside to really help uh, right this ship here. But, you know, it, it, how does a bank, I mean, it, it, unfortunately, Wells Fargo seems like it's almost too big to fail. But by the same token, it clearly seems like a culture and a business in a real state of crisis right now and i just i wonder how in the how in the world does that happen i mean it seems like the relationship with the bank is one based on trust and right now i don't know that i would trust this bank as far as i could throw it yeah i look i'm going to contradict myself a little bit from my last statement i do believe you have to be big to be able to compete in this market but i completely agree with your notion that at some point it is too big and and how you possibly manage and put in the control environment of an of institutions that are trillion dollar institutions with massive massive branch networks hundreds and hundreds of thousands you know of, of employees uh, compensation systems that you know are are designed pretty far down the the ladder and not in the c-suite how you how you keep control of all that and make sure that you run you know a a good business I, I think is is it's it's hard for me to get my head around I run a I run a five billion dollar institution and some days it feels like it's tough to keep it all in my head I can't imagine what it's like to run a trillion dollar institution um, and, and do that and, and then Jason on your issue of trust I mean you, you couldn't be more right I mean. Whether you're an institution or you're, you know, an individual consumer, your relationship with your money is one of the most important ones in, in your life. And some people fetishize about it, and some people don't pay enough attention to it. But it's important to everybody. And you know, you entrust your banker to keep your resources safe, and you want them to be looking out for your best interest. And I think when things happen that undermine that trust. You know, I think um, the the reputation of the organization is put immediately at risk, and I think companies that 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 suffer that violation of that trust have to take pretty drastic actions to be in a position to you know re- regain the trust of their customers. Yeah, you yeah. know, one thing that's happened in the industry—it's actually very hard for people to change their banking relationship. It is. It is. Um, it's a sticky relationship. Very sticky relationships. Um, you, you know, around uh, really around technology and. You know, you get you get your system set up so that your check goes in automatically and you pay your bills. Mm-hmm. And undoing that is a, a fair amount of work. Um, I, I shudder to think if if it had been easier for consumers to change what might have happened to uh, what might have happened to Wells Fargo's business. Um, so they got lucky in that sense. Um, 
they 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 need to be paying a lot of a, a lot of attention um, to making sure that they get the right leadership in place that is going to regain the trust. And and it's it's not just for Wells Fargo because um, when when whether it was in the financial crisis or the Wells Fargo scandal or you know some of the others that have happened, it's a it's a black mark on the entire industry. Um, and you know I think I think bankers are right up there with. You know, politicians in terms of popularity in this country <laughs> still, even you know, even ten years after the financial crisis. Yeah, and and so it 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 it, it impacts all of us, and we spend a lot of time, you know, trying to earn the trust of our our customers, and it's an important piece, and I, and I believe our customers do trust us, but it's because we're there with them and 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 helping them navigate a system that they don't always understand all that well, um, and it really makes those customer relationships for us. Sticky as well. I think you're right in that there probably is a stigma there. I don't want to paint every you know, everyone in the banking industry with the same brush necessarily, but there probably is a stigma there, um, given given everything that we've been through here. So let's talk about that financial crisis for just a, a minute because you have decades of experience in the finance industry, and you know, I always look back to the financial crisis as an investor and think that was probably the greatest learning experience I'll ever have for my entire life as an investor. You, you learn a lot about what matters, how to deal with with you know a market that obviously is in. in Tumult and and um, and so from the professional perspective, what were some of the lessons or what do you remember about that financial crisis that really have what what are the things you remember that have stuck with you today? So go back to two thousand and eight, right? We were we were on the on the verge of you know the greatest financial catastrophe since the Great Depression. Yeah, and you know I I, I think. People who intervened here, and, and we don't have to agree with everything that they did, um, but I do think the the, the leaders of the day, um, you know, and I really mean the the, the political leaders of the day, um, you, you know, moved into the space and they, you know, took you know quick action to to, to save the economy, um, and, and, and to save much more than the economy, to save the global system, really, and I, I think it was that dire. Um, and you know, the other thing that I remember very starkly from that was the absolute, you know, hatred that most of the American public had for executives in the financial services industry. And, you know, it, to build on the point we were talking about, uh, I mean, those executives were just, were just demonized. Um, and it's been hard to, to, to shake that ever since. But like you, I agree, it was a great, it was a great learning moment. We came through it. Um, and I think the system is, you know, in much, much better shape now. I think banks are better capitalized. I think the stress testing regime that the Dodd-Frank law put in is one of the smartest pieces of public policy. You won't hear many bank executives say that, but I 100% <laughs> believe it. I think, I think, especially for the large financial institutions, if they are going to have the privilege of being bailed out by the government when they get in deep trouble, they owe the American public uh, an awful lot to make sure that, you know, only in absolute extremists will we ever have to do that again. Um, and I think the system has, you know, changed um, for, for that. I, I worry, right, that risk has been shifted away from the regulated financial um, parts of the industry to the, to the, to the non-bank financial system. And if there's anything to worry about, I think some of those toxic assets that existed in the that inside the financial regulated financial environment in 2008 are still in the system, and they're and they're in the non-regulated in, in environment. And I hope I'm wrong about that, but <laughs> I, I I think we need to I think 
one lesson, not sure we can do it in the current administration, but I think one lesson is, is that we should be bringing more of the financial um, industry into the regulated environment and not in, uh, not on the outside. Um, and, um, um, you know, pretty smart people know what we need to do to protect ourselves, and we should listen to them. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I think that uh, when you're talking about people's money, a lot of times they don't really think a whole heck of a lot about it. They just sort of put their faith in whatever financial <laughs> institution is holding it, and we have to make sure that, that we're all held accountable for being good stewards. Um, okay, last question here. I'd like to wrap these interviews up with a fun one because we have an audience that loves to read. We here at The Fool love to read. I'm always looking for a good back, uh, book recommendation. Uh, so, Keith, wondering if you have any good book recommendations for our listeners. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to plug a very special book here, and that's um, a book that a gentleman named Mark Pinsky, who used to be the head of the Opportunity Finance Network, and, uh, and myself have co-authored called Organized Money. Very nice. Um, it, is a, it is a book um, about how uh, the progressive movement has enormous amounts of res- resources that are largely invested in a small-c conservative financial system that, um, that is not always working in the best interest of the progressive movement. And... Uh, I think by the agglomeration of, of those resources in a new financial system, I think the progressive movement could really create a system that was in service, you know, to its own um, uh, objectives and do that. And, and we chronicle, you know, hundreds of really great experiments that have been done throughout the last century. They're all very small. Um, but anyway, it's a, it's, it's a great read. Um, and I, <laughs> Uh, you can pre-order the book on, on Amazon. It comes out this October. Well, I better get to pre-ordering that book because it sounds like something that's definitely up my alley. Uh, Keith, we'll leave it at that. I know you've got a busy schedule, but thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to speak with us. I appreciate it. I know our listeners appreciate it. Really like the message you're communicating there at, at Amalgamated Bank, and I'm going to enjoy following you guys along. Thanks, Jason. Thanks to Grammarly for supporting this episode of Industry Focus. Grammarly is a communication tool that helps people improve their writing to be mistake-free, clear, and effective. They encourage everyone, even the best students and top professionals, to use Grammarly to do their best work and accomplish even more of their goals. Let's face it, folks. Communication matters, and writing is a skill that can separate you from the crowd. You want to close more deals at work this year with your emails? Boom! Grammarly. Want to polish your resume to get that new job? Bing! Grammarly. I've used Grammarly myself to clean up my rating, and I have to say, it's easy to use and always helpful. Grammarly is available across platforms, including online, desktop, and mobile. Their free product reviews, critical spelling, and grammar, but Grammarly Premium looks out for spelling, grammar, plus advanced punctuation, structure, style within context, vocabulary suggestions, conciseness, and readability for different occasions. It does a lot. Go to Grammarly.com slash fool to get 20% off your Grammarly premium account today. That's Grammarly.com slash fool for 20% off your Grammarly premium account. And now joining me in the studio via Skype is certified financial planner Matt Frankel. Matt, happy April Fool's Day. Same to you. Greetings from pollen-covered South Carolina. <laughs> yeah, we're. I think we're right behind you there. It's still a little bit uh, cooler up here, probably than it is down there. But, but I think that's all starting to hit. Uh, Hopefully, I, I, I have a yellow car right now, and I don't drive a yellow car. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine, uh, Matt. We wanted to uh, 
talk this week about something that you and I have talked about on a few episodes now. And just recently, we were uh, kind of asking ourselves the rhetorical question of, of Wells Fargo and Tim Sloan and their whole executive suite mess, the, the, the horse poop that they continue to step in just week after week, it seems like. Um, and lo and behold, last week, you know, we get the news that uh, CEO uh, Tim Sloan is stepping down. And they have a uh, search committee out there to try to find a new CEO for the company. And it sounds like that's going to be an external search. Uh, you know, I think we both kind of fall on the same same uh, same conclusion here. Is this, you think this is ultimately a good thing? Yeah, I think it needed to happen. I don't know if um, I'm not saying that a new candidate's going to hop in and Wells Fargo is going to be a, a completely different bank tomorrow or next month or even in the next year or so. But this needed to happen for the bank to truly move on. Um, if you've been following any of the political uh, dealings with Wells Fargo, um, Tim Sloan testifying in front of the Financial Financial Services Committee, but that was pretty much everyone's biggest complaint is that he's still there. Not that Wells Fargo is not trying to right the ship, not that they weren't making cultural changes. The problem was that the people who were who had caused the problem in the first place were, for the most part, still there, uh, Sloan included. He was up. Uh, president and COO during all the the scandals in question. So the fact that he's gone could open up a whole lot of doors for the bank to legally get past this mess. Um, Elizabeth Warren, who's been the, you know, Wells Fargo's biggest enemy in the news, has openly written a letter to the Federal Reserve asking them to keep their penalty intact indefinitely as long as Sloan was still there. If I've, I've talked about their penalty a few times, um, if you're not really familiar, it's it's that Wells can't grow past its size at the end of 2017 without the Federal Reserve lifting this penalty. So the bank's not allowed to grow in a, what's a great growth environment for banks. So if that were to be lifted, this would be a big deal for the bank. It's not that Wells is going to be a different bank. It's that this could you know open the door for the government to say, okay, now you're really trying to move on. Now we'll give you a chance. So when I look at this from you know our perspective, I mean I feel like we ask this question an awful lot, and if it's so obvious to us, I just don't understand quite why it wasn't so obvious to the powers that be at Wells Fargo. But why would you think when they were looking to fill the CEO position a little while back, given everything that had happened to that point? And given what we knew, and clearly they must have known it as well, why do you think they went with an internal hire? It just, you know, I, I said before, it seems like you're going around your rear end to get to your elbow. It just, it doesn't make sense. You're just, just kind of, you're not going, you're not making the, that's not a smart decision. It's kind of, you're delaying the inevitable. Why do you feel like they would go with an internal hire as opposed to just immediately going external and really trying to nip this thing in the bud? Well, my feeling is that. Since the first thing that really needed to happen were the cultural changes, meaning that their their sales goals needed to be done away with, um, some departmental restructuring needed to be done, then maybe they wanted somebody in there who really had a great working knowledge. Because, so, I mean, Sloan had been there since the 80s. So maybe somebody with a really good working knowledge of how the bank's different parts work together would have made that process a little more efficient. And to be fair, the, the cultural changes and some restructuring and that that happened pretty fast, so I'm thinking that's why they kept Sloan in there as long as they did, just to because for that phase of the the getting past all this, it, they really needed somebody who knew the bank really well. 
How long do you think it takes before they get a new CEO in there? I mean, this has got to be something that happens fairly quickly, right? I mean, I think uh, when we were looking at Square, for example, and they were trying to bring a new CFO in, um, you know, we we thought that probably wouldn't take all that long, and it really didn't. I mean, I would have to imagine there's a short list of candidates already, right? I would be shocked if it didn't happen by the end of the second quarter. Okay. Um, like I said, it's uh, Wells Fargo's number one priority should be to get these penalties lifted and be able to really move on, and that's not going to happen until they put a new CEO in there. So I think they're going to make this a, they're going to really try to expedite this process. Okay, we shall see. Uh, well, let's go ahead and uh, wrap things up here. Before we do, we want to give our listeners one to watch. Uh, so, Matt, I'll let you kick it off this week. What's your one to watch? Um, I'm actually going to go with Wells, just because I don't think that the market truly appreciates what a big deal it would be if that Fed penalty was lifted and if someone else was in there to kind of get the lawmakers off the bank's back. Um Wells Fargo popped a little bit after the news was announced, but not by much. It's still a major underperformer, even over the past week or so, has been a major underperformer in the sector. So I'd like to, I I, I want to go with that. I think there, there's a lot of upside there if if they successfully find a new CEO and get the penalty lifted. Yeah, that's a, probably a pretty good catalyst there. I'd say. I mean, we always look for in investment ideas either big market opportunities or some kind of catalyst that'll help unlock value. I think that probably makes for a pretty good catalyst. It's going to happen. It has to happen eventually. You figure so. It's, it's a good call. I like that. Uh, I, Matt, did you catch any of the Apple event last week? I did. I, I wrote a piece about the the card and um, kind of the details of it for our sister site, The Ascent. Were you as underwhelmed by the performance as I was? I was. My take on it is, is it's not a game-changing product by any means, but you know, the Apple faithful will still sign up. That's about it. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm going uh, with this week for my one to watch is Apple, and you know, I, I think I, we've said it before. I mean, Apple pivoting to being more of a services business, and or at least trying to grow that services side of the business makes a lot of sense. And I, I like the fact that they're doing it, and I think they're doing it the right way. It's going to be they're going to be they're going to be getting a lot of contra a lot of little contributions from from a lot of uh, different efforts. I mean, I you know, on the one hand, I mean, the Apple Card seems kind of interesting uh, from the perspective of the the security idea, and you know, they they do offer some rewards for cardholders. Um, I, I, the thing that cards, to me, generally speaking, it really boils down to incentives. What is your card? Uh, as far as as far as incentives, what is your card going to give you? And I don't think anything really stood out um, in regard to the Apple Card. Uh, you know, I look at my Amazon Prime Visa, and I basically, I mean, just given I use Amazon a whole heck of a lot more than I use Apple, that that card gives me way more than an Apple Card ever would. Um, but I mean, yeah, I think there are going to be some Apple faithful that that get it and like it, and they're always going to swear by it. Um, I, the thing that's that struck me. And I don't know that we talk about this as much here domestically, but uh, overseas, certainly, it seems like contactless payments um, are far more popular than they are here. And just I'm talking about like a card that you just you know scan and just instead of like swiping it or, or using your phone, you just have a card that you just swipe over the top of a of a sensor and it just uh, you know gets the data from that. Um, and personally, I kind of like contactless payments more than having to pull my phone out to do a payment with my phone anyway, which kind of makes me wonder about the Apple Card. I just I don't know that that mobile payments um, are as strong globally as maybe they might be domestically here. But I don't know. I mean, the Apple Card. I was 
I'm, I'm a little bit on a fence. I think I'm going to dig a little bit more into it. I think it, it could be a contributor. But, you know, honestly, I just like the fact that they're using MasterCard. I own those shares. So if it's MasterCard's making some money from it, then I'm happy. Um, <laughs> so that'll, uh, it will dig into more of that. And, and I'm probably learn, more, learn more about how that contributes to the business here in the coming quarters as well. Uh, but there you have it, folks. Matt, I'm going to go ahead and uh, take off here. Uh, thanks, as always, for joining us this week. Of course. I'll see you guys next week. Yes, sir. And as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Today's show is produced by Austin Morgan for Matt Frankel and Keith Mestrich. I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.